0: As you'll know by now, if you've been listening to this humble little podcast, despite its name being Radio Stockton Heath, the tagline that I use on the podcast's main page is not really a radio station and not just about Stockton Heath. So far, the podcast episodes published have qualified that statement. Nevertheless, despite that, they have remained within the Stockton Heath area. With this podcast, though, I'm going to talk about somewhere further afield. In fact, 100 miles further afield, Anglesey. Though, to be fair, where I go, around Ross Niger, it may as well be known as Cheshire-on-Sea, certainly during the summer months.
1: That hat, we've had it for 40 years. I've
0: got a funny feeling that little lad's lost his hat. We've had that hat in the family for 40 years. (laughs) And the trouble is, he's going to get hung out the window by his ankles down. Now I want to ask you a question, although let me just say I've not driven a hundred miles to ask you a question, but you'll understand why during this podcast why I ask the question. It's a simple question, when were you born? Imagine that you weren't born then, but you were born over a thousand years later, and you happen to be standing on a desolate coastline, surrounded by marram grass and sand dunes, with virtually nothing to see apart from the sea. And then imagine somebody approached you and informed you that this inconsequential little hamlet, albeit barren and pretty at the moment, was actually where the Royal Court of England was initially based. And this inconsequential little hamlet, called London, has now largely been forgotten by 99% of the population. Now why am I getting you to think about this? Well it's because an inconsequential little hamlet about 5, possibly 10 miles away from Rossniger, along the southwest coast of Anglesey is a place called Aberfrau. I'll come back to why I'm talking about this later. I want to talk about Rossniger first of all. When I first started coming here and making this 100 mile journey over 20 years ago it was a quiet almost run down little village. Today though it's vibrant and during these summer months it's sandy crossroad with its war memorial echoes and resonates to the sound of relaxing windsurfers and people who bob about in speedboats. I don't indulge in any of that myself, of course, but Niger's increasingly expanding coffee culture is relaxed and richly rewarding for all that. I like to visit Niger as much as I can, certainly when I've been working too hard So, when I'm tired like this, like you, I need a break away from home. As my friend Simon often said prior to emigrating to Australia, work, good lord, very overrated. I don't only visit Rossniger in the summer, I like it most, to be honest, in the winter, when the sky above is the colour of Snowdonia slate. And the air shakes to the sound of RAF jets splitting the silence, like the A55 splits the island in half. On the first day I get here, I always think, God, it's noisy, these RAF planes. Yeah. But after the first day, you don't even notice it, you? Not really. It just
1: depends where you are. Yeah. I live in Cross, and if in the, in the That's where of the station
0: is, isn't it?
1: Yeah, the station it, further up. Is it still open? Yeah. Where, where I lived down there by the, by the old Queens, you don't hear the aeroplanes. Go 300 yards up the road. and Like we're talking now. A, yeah, because they're a bit low. Yeah. Well, no, it's just on the flight path. Oh, right. Really? On the flight path, yeah. yeah. And you be in the garden there talking or something, you've got to stop.
0: No, are would now. Well, I turned up today. Around about, I reckon I got here at about two o'clock this afternoon, and I thought, bloody hell, they're loud, they're louder than normal. But yeah. after about an hour,
1: yeah. tuned out to it, and you know, you m- forget I that m- there. I remember that in the, the 60s, yeah. You're not old yeah. enough to remember the 60s. Yeah. Was that <laughs> fascinating? <laughs> <laughs> We'd be in this night in the, in the street, Their talking was a beer, and all of a sudden there'd be a, a lightning going across, <laughs> yeah. and it was bloody yeah. hell. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'd, I'd still be talking, but yeah, you know, I'd noticed it.
0: yeah came over with my brother about five years ago yeah. and he loves all the army and RAF mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff and he was absolutely he was in raptures being here oh. he just he couldn't believe it it was it was much better years
1: ago because you used to have a lot more aeroplanes yeah and you had the old battle of britain uh, air display maybe two years i think it was and we were in into christ one saturday afternoon didn't go to the air show but a Lancaster went over, wow. a Spitfire, yeah, and a Mosquito, you know. I bet the old guys were there like that, weren't they? Oh, I do <laughs> uh, Yeah, I know. It, it must have been almost was like doing the Second World War, wasn't it? You yeah. Oh, yeah. A oh, lovely look. Oh, nice. the, the Red Arrows were practising
0: a month or two ago display you know, know well i noticed a good few years ago now but i didn't notice when i first started coming there, only there about 100 yards away yeah that monument thing is a world war monument isn't it yeah. when i first started coming here i just assumed it was a clock tower which is oh, but it's also a monument isn't it for the is it both wars i think so i don't know how um, how much damage was done around it during the war not much at all i remember thoughts although when I say that main A55 splits the island in half, I think that's really a romantic notion. When you look at it on a map slicing its way across the island, I reckon about 60 maybe 70% is in the north. My part of the island, from South Stack all the way down to Aberfrau and further along to Newborough, is along the southwest coast. I do like the north side of the island, but to be honest, I rarely go there. Preferring to stay along the southwest coast around Aberfrau and Rosniger, I find them inspirational places. In fact, much more so than when I'm at home, when I'm in and around Rosniger, I spend more time photographing or writing stories I'll never finish than time often allows in and around Stockton Heath. During the summer, there's something about Anglesey solitude and history that inspires me. Normally during the summer, under a postcard blue sky, after a walk around Rossniger's main beach and across to Broad Beach, crunching across from pebbled grit to soft sand and dried popping seaweed below my feet, I'll walk up the gentle incline of Harrison Drive to the T-junction of Main Street and then across back towards the War Memorial and either call in at Sullivan's for a coffee or possibly back down to the beach and into fun sport. A cappuccino in one hand and a pen and notebook in the other I'll start to scribble ideas down and a story emerges I know I'll never finish. Around six miles along the coast from Rosniger is the ancient hamlet of Aberfrau. It's a hamlet that has a past that most people in the UK are completely unaware about. Today, its row of pastel-painted cottages that run alongside the narrow river that feeds out to sea, well, they disguise its past. Aberfrau was once the court of Welsh royalty. Imagine, in a thousand years from now, your ancestors visited a tiny hamlet called London and looked across an empty field into the distance where sand dunes and marram grass lay, and you realise that at one time Buckingham Palace stood here. and <laughs> There's S's in
1: there.
0: There's a lot of S's to remind me of the sea the mm-hmm. seashore. She says she shall find
1: seashore.
0: All oh, this seaweed crackles under my feet.
1: Look at them ones
0: when they come. Gosh, they're, they're
1: large.
0: Oh, they squeak. Tread on them. Alright, yes, I did. I did try and grab you. She says
1: she shall grab them. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. Seashore. By the seashore. Can you say that? I paid money to, me she to by the go in there. on. Seashells, seashells, seashells. Can you say it? She sells seashells
0: by the seashore. I've got to get it right in my head first.
1: She sells seashells by I'm the seashore. Too
0: many words at once. Do the first word. She. 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 Right, okay. She.
1: Sells. Sells. <laughs> sea. Shells by the seashore
0: It's too fast for me <laughs> <laughs> She She sells seashells by the seashore Yay See? After. Yeah. She sells seashells by the seashore yeah, she gonna gonna the Simple
1: yeah. think, she? It,
0: think it through in Self. your head first See.
1: Seashells By yeah. the seashore sure.
0: Can you do it in German?
1: No Seashells Mushown.
0: Mushown. And stand. say it all at
1: once. Oh, so we can do it in German. Well, what about in French? We
0: can't in French. In Russian. Anglesey started life as part of a long, a very long, undulating coastal plain from the foot of Snowdonia and stretched out westwards towards Ireland. The sea levels were around 60 feet lower at that time though. However, during glacial times, the change in sea level rose by around that 60 feet. A river that ran its course from north to south across the original undulating plain where the Menai Straits is now, of course flooded over Owing to the huge increase in sea level. As a result, only the higher land level of the original plain was raised above the sea, and with it, Anglesey as an island was born, with just under 300 square miles of rock remaining above the sea. Fabulous.
1: 72.
0: Oh, that went up. What limit are you going to give up at? 90. There's not a lot known about Aberfrau today, but what we do know is the royal palace at Aberfrau was destroyed by Vikings in and around 968 AD. It's not known with any great degree of accuracy when Aberfrau first located the extremely important and prominent royal palaces. But educated guesses indicate it had been there as long as six to seven hundred years before the Vikings destroyed it. Understanding its once huge royal importance, I find it now very strange to see the coastal Aberfrau as no more than a tiny village that the majority of the UK doesn't know exists. It is a pretty little village. It has a small packhorse bridge over a tiny river. It's not much wider than a winter rain logged stream, but this is a place as important to Britain at one time as Buckingham Palace today. Today, standing on the bridge, looking southwest out to sea across Carnarvon Bay, you would have no idea this was once the centre of administration of princes and kings who governed the whole of North Wales. Where the wooden royal palace stood all those many centuries ago is now just an empty field that looks out, unhindered, across Carnarvon Bay towards the undulating thin grey line of Snowdonia. Perhaps it's for this reason, and the somewhat romanticised look at the royal past that Prince William and his bride Kate Middleton first chose to live here when he was training to be a pilot at RAF Valley only 10 miles or so westwards along the coast. There's nothing to see here anymore, apart from the beautiful view. Isn't that enough? The last remaining timbers of the original wooden palace were removed in 1317 and used in the original construction of Carnarvon Castle. Plastic
1: it limits it's the decorating it.
0: Oh, where do you live at? Well, if I say Warrington, it's close enough. It's only a few miles from Warrington. Oh, Warrington, yeah. Just south of Warrington. My
1: uncle used to live in in Great Sankey. Oh, right, that's the side from me.
0: He's north of the water, the Ship Canal. Well,
1: there's a load of lads from Warrington on the rural Preston, Rochdale, Bolton, travelling every day. To here? To Colwyn Bay. Oh, to Colby? Bay! well, that's quite a distance. It is. (laughs) From Rochdale? Yeah, it's from Rochdale. that's got to be... I think it's still, 120 miles? Oh, yeah. The gangs of plasters.
0: Well, I guess yeah. he pays to do it, so... Yeah. If he didn't pay, they wouldn't do it, really. I always found it amusing, oh. I and mean, I only noticed today that the yeah. chip shop here, I can't remember it's what it's now called.
1: What is it called?
0: It was the Bally High, was not it? Yeah. And it's now these Scarlet or something. The Scarlet or... Oh. I don't know. I
1: didn't whatever notice. it's called now. Yeah. Previously, whatever that... Yeah. What
0: was it? The Bally... Bally
1: High. The people who owned that, yeah. You're from Warrington? Well, yeah, I, I believe so, yeah, you could be right, I can remember
0: you. Yeah, I remember the people. So we were in there, for, well, say, a couple of years ago, probably <coughs> longer than that, but about eight years ago, and we were chatting away and we said, ''We recognise your accent.'' All yeah. oh, right, where are you from?'' Thinking in yeah. Kesha or it's somewhere great. like that.'' I so, said, ''Oh, we're from Warrington.'' <laughs> ''Oh, right,
1: really?'' <laughs> 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 ''So
0: why have you opened a chip shop in Rosniger?'' <laughs> ''That seems weird.'' I yeah.
1: think the woman who owns it now, she's from the Isle of Man,
0: not she? Is she? That's a commute.
1: <laughs> every day. Do you know, I've never been what you want
0: now? We found a crab?
1: No, cowries.
0: Another one. <laughs> the seaweed is crackling under my feet again. I don't ooh. And now I've got soaking feet. Harrison Drive, Chapter 1 Things aren't always as they first appear. After a five-hour drive through the night, 46-year-old Paul Foxton climbed out of a black Range Rover he couldn't ordinarily afford to hire. He was exhausted, his eyes were stinging, and even though he was now far enough away from London to be out of danger, his heart was beating hard. Hidden under the Range Rover's passenger seat was more than £84,000, a collection of counterfeit credit cards and an unloaded gun. The weapon scared him, even without bullets, but it was necessary. A more incriminating hiding place was now required. Half-heartedly burying the gun here on Anglesey was an essential part of the plan he was now following. Leaning back into the vehicle, shoulder blades aching, he stretched across and reached under the passenger seat, His fingers found it, but the gun's hard cold touch bit into his memory, like the buckle on his uncle's belt into his six-year-old back. His eyes involuntarily shut tightly, and he winced at a long-past physical pain that still punished him mentally every day. No, not now, he snapped at himself as a forty-years-ago raw pain roared through his mind. Now wasn't the time to let dark remembrances take control again. Deep breaths. Dry throat. Beads of sweat. Moments passed as he regained control. He focused on the rhythmic sound of waves crashing in the distance. The sustained white noise of the sea soothed him. A breeze caressed him until his breathing settled and the pulsing vein on his temple faded. Controlled now, he grabbed the gun and wrapped it tightly inside a newspaper he'd thrown into the passenger footwell when making his escape soon after midnight. He moved out of and away from the vehicle. With mobile phone in one hand, hidden gun in the other, Foxton took a few paces from the hired Range Rover and stood in scared silence in a remote coastal car park on the rugged southwest edge of Anglesey. A cold dawn August air clawed at his back beneath his shirt and grey fleece. He didn't feel it. Fear had anaesthetized his senses. He was alone. Again. This time, though, through choice. Hard, compacted sand scraped beneath his feet as a slowly rolling sea mist moved inland and evaporated like a father's faith mourning a son's early death. The decision he made now could not be reversed. If he was going to change his mind, now was his only time. He vacantly looked at the screen on his mobile. It was 5.45am. He flicked the phone to silent and slipped it into his fleece pocket. He now stood motionless his senses not really alert to his surroundings. It took a moment before he realised he was crying. Damn it! Stop it! He dug his fingernails into his bandaged left arm that covered a recent and raw tattoo. The sharp pain distracted and focused his mind once more. Rolling down his shirt sleeves, he zipped up the fleece. He looked up and around. The early morning summer sun climbed above a distant Snowdonia to the east. His eyes traced an undulating thin line that divided a clear blue sky above from white-covered grey mountains below. A soft, constant breeze flicked through his thinning hair. Then, a stronger, unexpected solitary gust threw sand up into his face, but he turned away in time and shielded his eyes with his right hand. The wind dropped, and he lowered his arm, an imitation Rolex on his wrist glinting in the sun. Although mainly obscured by dunes and marram grass, he looked out towards the sea for a few moments. This was the first peace he'd felt in months. It didn't last long. His soft solitude was broken by intermittent screeches of seagulls puncturing the sustained crash of distant waves. The gun. Should he hide it here? It looked a suitable place. He turned back to the Range Rover. On the back seat... Purposely in view was a brand new wetsuit his portly stomach had little chance of fitting. It didn't matter, it was only for show. Next to it, wrapped loosely in a blanket, was a heavily sedated dog. Its breathing was shallow in the depths of drugged sleep. Foxton would need to act quickly or it would wake too soon. This part of his plan was its weakest element. It relied on luck. Before he could think or act, Foxton's phone vibrated in his pocket. Seeing the number was withheld, he quickly cancelled the call. No chance, he said out loud. It vibrated again. This time, he clicked it to answer. But, as he drew it up to his ear, he remained silent. A few seconds passed before a calm-toned voice threatened, Don't worry, I will find you. Foxton hesitated as he silently suppressed his fear. He then responded, Don't you worry. I intend for you to find me. He cancelled the call and powered down the phone. But not yet, he mumbled to himself. He started to shake. His bravado was an act. Acting was something he was now heavily reliant on. If he hadn't been so mentally tired, he would have controlled his fear more quickly. Foxton's long drive through the night had left him physically exhausted too. He was unquestionably unfit. The only time he'd run anywhere in years was eight days previously to escape from the person blackmailing him into killing someone he'd never met. Now, hundreds of miles away, standing alone in a remote sandy car park next to a narrow packhorse bridge, the early morning summer sun and crisp sea air made him feel more optimistic than he'd felt in as long as he could remember. His optimism made him pause. He was beguiled by the simplicity of his surroundings The rising sun threw shafts of gold into the shallows of a narrow river flowing under the small bridge to Foxton's right as it glistened its way out to sea. This was a long way from the constant concrete of London. He had finally escaped the last few months but the fatigue of the drive had caught up with him. He inhaled deeply and momentarily closed his tired brown eyes. The quiet, sustained crash of distant waves caressed and soothed him once more. A few seconds passed. He exhaled with a long sigh. A sea-salt-laced breeze wrapped around him, refreshing his senses. Now, with his ache stretched out and his nerves calmed, he glanced at the imitation Rolex he hadn't got used to yet. As it had just turned dawn, he was confident there would be nobody around watching him. But, with his back to the Range Rover, and behind that an exposed empty road that threaded along the coastline, he needed to be sure. Directly ahead and to his left, sand dunes dominated and blocked Foxton's view of the sea. To the right, there was a row of closed-curtained houses that ran in parallel to the narrow river the Packhorse Bridge spanned before it flowed for half a mile out to sea. The houses were quite ordinary terraced properties, but some had been made to look more exotic by being painted pastel blue, summer yellow or sunset red all disguised the rough brickwork beneath. Foxton checked the closed curtains, and then, satisfied, turned back to the vehicle. The Range Rover satellite navigation system had remained unused for the whole of the journey, mainly because the drive north and then west to Anglesey was well signposted. More importantly, Foxton only wanted to be tracked when it suited him. Nevertheless, he needed to check his location. He opened the passenger door, and reached into the glove compartment. He then walked round to the front of the vehicle, and whilst leaning on its warm bonnet, ran a bitten fingernail along an unfolded map, opened up to where Carnarvon Bay merges indistinguishably into the Irish Sea. To the uninitiated, they appeared to be the same expanse of water. To the coastguard, they were as distinct and different as night and day. Foxton slowly traced his finger along the map, moving inland from the sea and north along the narrow river to the sandy car park he was standing in. He looked up from the map and around to confirm his position. A signpost next to the Packhorse Bridge indicated he was at Aberfrau, a tiny village of no influential importance today, but, centuries ago, the site of the Palace of Welsh Princes. For the next few weeks, until it was over, Foxton would act like royalty. First, though, he needed to be ten miles further along the coast, and, if possible, be there before people awoke. He'd been here long enough. He needed to move on with his plan. He quickly lifted the blanketed, still-sedated dog out of the Range Rover and carefully down onto the hard, compacted sand of the car park, whilst checking the identification tag was secured to the collar. It read, J. Wimbledon. He pulled the blanket away from around the dog and threw it onto the back seat, careful not to cover the wetsuit. Despite being heavily sedated, the dog whimpered slightly on the hard sand. Aware, Foxton reached into the glove compartment again and drew out an innocuous-looking penknife. He crouched down between the dog and the vehicle and with the blade exposed, sliced several small slivers of rubber from the rear tyre onto the ground. Then he climbed back into the vehicle and drove on with the sun climbing the crisp blue morning sky in his rear-view mirror. Intentionally left behind on the hard sand of the car park, the dog whimpered in heavy, sedated sleep. Without the Range Rover satellite navigation switched on, to check correct direction, Foxton glanced at a printed piece of card on the passenger seat that had the handwritten words Clare's Coastal Route, as requested, written on the reverse. Guided by this printed list of directions, 20 minutes later Foxton stopped once more. Many months of meticulous planning had brought him to Ross Niger. Now he could start.
1: We've got about 3 feet tall and we've found 3 light jellyfish about that big in the water
0: Quite oh,
1: small then, what's that about size of £2 a piece?
0: No, like... £10 piece About a £2 a piece Oh, £2 a piece Well, I think it'll be good Yeah It's not much further, does it? Does it come out there? Yeah? What? <laughs> it was buried now, it was under there. What is, it...
1: is, it... is, it... is
0: it? It was an apple core. <laughs> it was a very funny joke. Yeah. We'll leave it.
1: Go. it.
0: Boy,
1: what did you say? Core. Him. Well don't even don't even well, but you.
0: I found that. I like its colours.
1: You know, it looks What? Uh, Stone. Uh,
0: it looked blue I and white, but it's actually grey and white. I found one! It blue white.
1: Yeah. white. Oh, I found one!